Isn't that a beautiful song? I heard that a couple of weeks ago. And then, and I'm not, uh, I'm not, I don't, I don't brag about my ability to search the net. But I searched the net for two weeks. YouTube, A-tube, InnerTube, <laughs> every tube I could find. And I discovered two things. Number one, uh, that is a very popular song. There are many, many people who sing that song, and they put it on YouTube and UnderTube and all the other tubes. I was trying to find the one I was looking for, but I didn't know what I was looking for. I said, I'll know it when I find it, and then I found it. I don't know who this couple is. I think they're associated with uh, the Gaither group. Uh, but uh, beautiful voices. And I wanted you to be able to see the words as well. And so this was the one that, that we chose. Uh, it's very appropriate for today. I hope you listened to, uh, to the words as you visualize them. Um, it begins by saying, Jerusalem. You know, he cried for you. And that's a very important statement because in the scripture reading we had in Luke just a little while ago, in Luke chapter 19, verses 41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. They were thinking of that when they penned the words, uh, Morris Chapman, I think, wrote the song. When he wrote those words, he was thinking of this passage because on Palm Sunday, when Jesus entered into the city, many were crying out, Blessed is the King who comes. And you remember what the religious rulers told the disciples. He rebuked them. He said... He told Jesus, rebuke your disciples. They have no right to be singing that. You're not the coming king. We reject you as the Messiah. We reject you as, as anything that pertains to the fulfillment of the promises God has given us in the Scriptures. And so Jesus wept over the city because he realized that there was no belief. There was no faith. There were many individuals, but as the rulers of the nation went, so went the nation. And the rulers were determining any way and every way they could to do away with him. And so began the last week of our Lord's life upon this earth, which led him to Calvary. Not by accident. It was the ultimate fulfillment of the very purpose for which God sent him to us. Jesus himself said, I did not come to serve, uh, uh, to be served, but to serve, Mark 10.45, and to give my life a ransom for many. The night before, he went to the cross. He prayed to the Father, and he said, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, thy will be done. And what was the cup? The cup wasn't, well, they're going to put nails in my hand. That's going to hurt. And they're going to drive uh, nails in my feet. And they're going to mock me. And they're going to put a uh, crown of thorns on my head. And they're going to make me drag that cross all through Jerusalem. 
to Golgotha. That wasn't what he was talking about. When he said, let this cup pass, he was saying, Lord, I know that tomorrow is the fulfillment of why you sent me to be the God-man. Tomorrow on that cross, you will forsake me. And that's never, ever, ever happened before in all of eternity. But it was going to happen this coming Friday. Nevertheless, thy will be done. The song goes on. Bethlehem morning is more than just a memory for the child that was born there has come to set us free. The song is dead on when it says that the reason He came was to set us free. And it was by His death on the cross. That was the only way that we could be set free. Uh, the next slide, I drew a, a line in case you can't see it. In these verses, he's talking about the first coming. He came to set us free by way of the cross. And then he says, Bethlehem sunrise, I can see him in your eyes. For the child that was born there, he's king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And he will come again. And that's what we're all awaiting for, the day when Christ returns to gather his church unto himself. And then a little later, he'll return to establish his kingdom where he will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We're celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning. And uh, I draw your attention to what Paul reminds us of in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 26. In the midst of telling us about how that first Lord's Supper took place in the upper room the night before Christ's crucifixion, Jesus said, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You might remember a year ago, we gathered for the Lord's Supper and Thad asked me to take charge that day. And I used this passage. And you might remember that I pointed out that there's a looking to the past. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, that you proclaim the Lord's death. That's what happened in the past until he comes. So the Lord's Supper is a time where we remind ourselves and we proclaim that He died for us. And that's the basis for our salvation. Faith alone in Christ alone. But He's coming again to, to bring completion to our redemption. We've been delivered from the penalty of sin. We are now being delivered from the power of sin as we walk by the Spirit. And one day we will be delivered from the very presence of sin and will be glorified in His presence. And I remember uh, talking about the fact that somehow it may be overlooked a little bit about the present. We talk about the past, Christ's death. We talk about the future, His return. The present is now. And you remember I raised two questions. I raised the question, who is the church? And you might remember what the answer was. Uh, because of time, they put in a clock now, so I really got to watch that, that. Don't have an excuse. The answer to who is the church is that we are the church. The church is people, not buildings, not programs. The church 
is born-again believers, whether they be red, yellow, brown, black, or white. You might remember I debuted my singing career a year ago, and uh, it, nobody's mentioned it since, <laughs> at least in a positive way. <laughs> We're the church, and it's universal. It's not just here and trustful. It's worldwide. There are believers on every continent of the world right now. Through the work of missions, the gospel is still going where it hasn't been before. And people are hearing the gospel, and some, if not many, are coming to Christ the same way we did, convicted of our sin, and realizing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody ever loved you more than God did. And he loved you so much, he sent his only begotten son for you. And on the cross, he was dying for you and for me. And having satisfied all that his righteousness demands, God can now give mercy and forgiveness to those who simply believe, to those who accept the gift. I then raised the question, what is the mission or the purpose of the church? And we talked about the church in its entirety, the church universally. Its purpose and mission is to take the truth of the gospel to the world. God doesn't have a plan B. Plan A is still in effect. And plan A was Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you. Don't forget, people, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. We have the promise that he will be with us until the job is done, and he comes to take his, his church back to himself. Now, this morning, I want to add a third question. Uh, third question is, what is God's design and purpose for every believer in this present time. I don't want to talk about the church globally, the church universally. I want to talk about you individually. During this present time, from the time he died on the cross until he comes back, 2,000 years of time already and still counting. But for all of us who live in that present time, what is God's purpose for you as an individual believer? And I think it's relatively simple. I hope so. Uh, let me suggest my answer. My answer as to what is God's design and purpose is that he wants you to experience his joy. He wants you to experience his joy and peace day by day by day as you walk with him in obedience to his word. I don't know who thought it up, but on the screen outside behind that wall, Announcing today in the service and communion and all that. Uh, I like your, your, your idea. I like it better than mine. It's a lot shorter. This is what's on the screen when it announces the sermon. Being joyful until he comes. Man, that hits it right on the head. I wish I'd have thought of that. I wrote it down, and it's going to go in my notes, and I'll take credit for it from, from now on. <laughs> I really wrestle with that. But I like that short answer. What is your purpose? To be joyful until he comes. Now, what does that mean? I'm sure everybody 
has some idea what it joyful means. Our team wins the SEC. Uh, I get uh, all I want for Christmas. The doctor says the cancer's gone. There are a lot of things we can rejoice about. Uh, it's, I'm going to start in trying to deal with this issue of, of rejoicing and joy, being joyful. I, I want to take you to a passage that is difficult for some people to deal with. It's in Hebrews chapter 12, the first two verses. It says, therefore, and by the way, whenever you see the word therefore, you always need to look to see what it's there for. Therefore, it's saying, in light of what I just got through telling you, uh, in chapter 11 and really in all of it, do you know that there are some people, we don't know who wrote Hebrews other than the Holy Spirit, but there are some people that think a woman must have written it. And to me, that's, that's idiocy. Because, well it, well, it may not be. It may be a good, it may be. It, it could very well have been a, a, a woman. Because here is a book that is so deep in Christological truth about the superiority of Jesus Christ as a revealer, as a priest, uh, as a savior. The writer is comparing him to everything. And he's saying, no one can compare to Jesus Christ. And he goes through 12 chapters, actually 13 chapters, of some of the deepest, greatest doctrine you will ever read in your life. And, and then the writer comes to the end and says, I've written these few words. You know, only, only a woman could say that. <laughs> I've written th- these few words. We don't know who wrote it. Some say Paul. It doesn't matter. We know what the book's about, and that's why the author didn't reveal himself. He said, don't put the light on me. Put the light on the one I'm talking about. But in chapter 12, he says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and he's talking about all the believers who've gone before us. They've lived their life by faith. They came to the point and God took them in death, and there was separation of the body from the spirit. Since we have this great cloud of witnesses, he says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance. It's the picture of an athlete. He doesn't run in a tuxedo. When he's getting ready to run the race, he takes off everything he can that will still keep him morally acceptable to the camera. You know, he, he gets down to a tight-fitting top and some shorts, and now he's ready to run. So laying aside every encumbrance and the sin, definite article, the sin, not sin, general, laying aside the sin. In the context of Hebrews, in my mind, there's only one answer to what that sin was. It was the sin of unbelief. Because he's writing to Hebrew believers who are wavering in their faith. And they think that if they go back to practicing the law, it'll make things better. They can have the best of both worlds. And the writer is saying, no, you can't. You can't do that. You can't go back. But lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. 
despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How in the world could going to the cross be associated with joy? But the writer says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. How can we harmonize that? I'm convinced there's only one answer. If I'm wrong, I'd love to hear your, your answer when I get through when we, after the service. Be glad to listen. I can only think of one way to harmonize this. He found going to the cross joy because he was doing the will of his Father. In other words, joy is associated with obedience. Obedience to God. And that same Father that was His is ours. And for the believer to have a joyful life, for us to be able to say we're joyful until He comes, I think that it has to be associated with the fact that we are obedient. To what? To Him. Well, how do we know what He wants us to do? He's revealed it for us in this book. It's in the book. And if we walk obediently in the present time, that's what produces joy. Now, some of you could probably share a word of testimony. I know Becky could. She already has. I wouldn't wish that on my enemies, what she went through. That was horrible. But as she talks about it, she's joyful. Because, first of all, she's responding the way God wants her to respond to it. She's not saying, well, he doesn't have the right to do that to me. Who does he think he is? Duh. He's God. And he's sovereign. And he can do as he chooses. Apart from betraying his own nature. And Paul reminds us that all things work together for good to them that love him. To them that are called according to our purpose. No, according to his purpose. And sometimes God says, you're going to have to go through something you're not going to like. But I want you to do it. Do it. Trust me. And when we trust Him in obedience, even though it may not be something that brings us happiness, it produces joy. Now, in the short time I have left, I want to just take you on a little cruise through the Scriptures. There are so many. I've tried to highlight just just a few, 30 or 40, no, not 30 or 40, but a few passages that I think bring these two together, joy and obedience. Philippians chapter 2, very popular passage. Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now Paul says, one of the things that brings joy to my life, apart from my own obedience, is when I see my disciples walking in obedience. So he tells the Philippians, I want you to walk in obedience, because that will make my joy complete. That really... Torch my converter, as they say down at the auto shop. Do they say that, Dave? Really? You ever hear that? Dave Johnson would know. 
That torques my converter. That, that pushes my button. Paul was saying, if you will walk in obedience, if you will have the same mind, if you will uh, have a, a compassion and fellowship of the Spirit, if you will have the consolation of love, if you're maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose, that brings me joy. And it ought to bring you joy too because you're obeying what God wants you to do. Verse 5, same chapter, Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. People get hung up on that. What in the world does that mean? I think it means simply this. Jesus was God. His Father was God. And the Father said, for a time, I want you to take on a human nature and be a God-man. And you're going to be in submission to your mother, your father, to me, to a lot of people until the time when you'll do what you were sent to do. Some people would say, no, no, don't do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I, I want to live in the Manson mansion. I don't want to live in an apartment downtown. I have a good friend in Dallas who he and his daddy owned the elevator business, and it grew and grew and grew until finally they, they took over uh, Westinghouse. Westinghouse had them come to New York, and they signed an agreement. If anybody in Texas wants an elevator, you will put in a Westinghouse elevator. We'll give you our name, but you'll do all the work and you'll get all the money. Well, when that happened, they realized they needed to have, they needed an office in San Antonio, and they needed an office in Houston, and they needed an office in Austin, and they needed an office uh, in El Paso, in Amarillo. And they tried to hire men to run those branches. And without exception, every one of them would stay long enough to learn the business, to learn the pricing, and then they would leave and start their own company to peak compete against them. And so finally they said, we're going to have to send our own people there. And they had sons. And they all finished their training at Texas A&M. They graduated with degrees in electrical engineering and business administration. And so they said, okay, Philip, you're going to San Antonio. And John, you're going to Houston. And they all started balking. We don't want to go there. We want to stay here in Dallas because we're, our name is Baxter and we want to live next to Dad because he's got the swimming pool. And blah, 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 blah. They felt threatened because they were being told to go away. They wanted to stay because that they were who they were and they wanted to be near their father and they wanted everybody to realize that it's Baxter and Sons. That's the name of the company, Baxter and Sons. Well, Jesus was being told to become a man and submit himself to humanity. And Paul is saying he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He wasn't hanging on. No, please, please don't make me go do that. I don't want to go do that. I don't want to be viewed as just a man. I want to, I want to be the eternal Son of God who, who took part in the creation of the heavens and the earth and all that. But he emptied himself, it says. That word emptied, there are more books written on that one word than you could ever think. 
Because that word is the word kenosis, and it's, it's the great kenosis issue. What happened when he emptied himself? Some say he stopped being God. In order to become a man, he had to stop being God. No. Emptying himself doesn't mean that he became less. Emptying himself means that he became more. In addition to being the divine, eternal Son of God with the divine nature, he added a human nature at the incarnation so that he became a theanthropic person. He became a God-man, fully God, every bit as much God as God the Father, fully man, every bit as much man except without sin. Because of the virgin birth. People will argue, well, wait a minute. Uh, If he doesn't have sin nature, he's not man. That's what we are. Well, that wasn't what Adam was. Adam was fully man before he sinned. Sin's an add-on. It wasn't the factory design. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus was on a divine mission. I have come not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And what was that will? You will go to the cross, and I will turn away from you. I will put the sin of humanity on you, and I will judge you in their place. And then we know that God accepted his death, because then he raised him from the dead on the third day. And that's a part of our gospel message. I could, well, I want to go in more detail, but that clock just keeps ticking away. Even in the Old Testament, there was an association with, between joy and and obedience. First uh, Chronicles chapter 12. You say, First Chronicles will just blow the dust off, and, and it's back there in the Old Testament. At the time when they were making David king of Israel, everybody was excited, and they were all doing whatever they had to do. Uh, they were doing what they were being told to do. And one verse as they were rejoicing about making David their king, uh, I'll read you verse 39 and then 40. It says, All these men of war who could keep ranks came to Hebron with a loyal heart to make David king over all Israel. And the rest of Israel were of one mind to make David king. And then verse 40. Moreover, those who were near to them, even as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, they brought food on donkeys, camels, mules, and on oxen. Boy, that would be a great covered dish dinner. Bring a dish, but put it on a donkey, a camel, a mule, or an oxen. Great quantities of flour cakes, fig cakes, and bunches of raisins, wine, oil, oxen, and sheep. And the last part of that verse says... There was joy indeed in Israel. Where was the joy coming from? They were being obedient to what God had told them to do. You can go to Second Chronicles chapter 29 when Hezekiah was the king of Israel. 
And he challenged the Levites. He gave them an order of what their job was to be in the, the, the new kingdom. He was, he was uh, kicking out all the sinful things. He was reforming Israel. And he gave the Levites their new job, their new duty. And there, there are verses that talk about all they're supposed to do. But it comes down to verse 30. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshipped. Where was the joy coming from? They were obedient to what God wanted them to do as they followed a king who wanted to follow God. Judah had 20 kings, only eight of them, it can be said, they did that which was right in the sight of God. And Hezekiah was one of them. Let's jump back to the New Testament. John chapter 15. You're familiar with this passage. It's the vine and the branches. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. The joy is associated with the commandments to love one another. As I have loved you, that's the way I want you to love one another. Not sort of like or the best I can do, but you love one another the same way I love you. And I was willing to die for you. Matter of fact, I did die for you. And on that basis, you can have life forever as well. John chapter 17. This is the Lord's Prayer. Matthew is the one he taught us to say. John 17, he's praying to his father. His great high priestly prayer. Verse 13. But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And again, making joy full in them is associated with I've given them my word. And it's not just to put on a shelf and say, hey, i got a copy of the Word. Doesn't that look good? Actually, mine's kind of getting old, and I thought I had the right color tape, but it, it turned out to be a different shade of blue. But this is the Word, and I have, I have about 15 different kinds of the Word. I don't ever read it. I don't really care what it says, but I've been given the Word. No. The context is they were given the Word because that would be the blueprint. That's the way they would live their lives, and that would produce joy and also bring joy to Christ himself. Because, again, it's because of him that we not only have forgiveness of sin, but it's because of him that we can begin to have a transformation process in our life. We don't have to be what we used to be anymore. And shame on you if you know Christ but you're still the same you you've always been. You have the potential through the Spirit of God to be something entirely new. I watched my father go through that. It was unbelievable. Now, he, he never quite hit perfection. He was far from it. But he was a lot further that way than he was from where he came. 
And God had just done wonders in changing the way he thought and in the way he acted, in the way he put away selfishness and really began to think about others as more important than himself. It was wonderful having a father like that. John 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them in the truth. Well, what's that, Lord? Thy word is truth. So I don't care what the philosophers say, or I don't care what the New York Times prints. This is truth. Well, but you see, that's an ancient book that was, that's outdated. No, it isn't. It is an ancient book. But it's as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. And it's the way God wants his people to live. And maybe the reason why so many people don't show joy in their life is because they're not in obedience to the Father. They just rationalize that, well, it's okay. Uh, It's a new day. Or, well, everybody's doing it. Or maybe they just rationalize, he's too busy to care. I mean, I'm his child. What's he going to do? Send me to hell? People think that way sometimes. No, he won't send you to hell. But before you get to heaven, he may make you think you've been through it, through discipline. Got to move on. Romans 15:13. Paul concludes by saying, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, we need to have a behaving faith. Not faith in nothing, but faith not only in what the Lord has done for us, but faith in what He continues to do as we walk in obedience. Galatians 5, 6, uh, Romans, excuse me, 3 John chapter 4 John writes and says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. John says, you know, I've had a lot of joy in my life, in my personal relationship with the Lord, but I really, I'm really filled with joy when I hear that other Christians are walking in the truth. They're walking in the faith. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. If you're walking by the Spirit, you can't be walking by the flesh at the same time. Now, if you're walking by the flesh, this is what he says the flesh produces. Immorality, impurity, sexuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousing. May have left out a few, but I think that paints a picture. Walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, if you're walking in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and all the rest. Joy is one of them. Walking in the Spirit produces joy because walking in the Spirit is being obedient to what God wants us to be doing. 
honoring the Word in our life. Not just quoting it and memorizing it, but letting it become the standard by which we live. They put stents in my heart a few years back. And for a while, uh, there was a concern because in that artery, that stent is protruding. And they didn't want blood flowing through to stick to that metal stent and eventually create a a block and all that. But they, they told me, they said, eventually the inside of the wall of the artery will grow over the stent so that the stent now becomes encapsulated in the wall of the artery so that the wall of the artery is just smooth again. You can't tell that there's a stent there. Well, that's what the Spirit does. When we walk by the Spirit, He just begins to allow all the things that come from obedience to be manifested in our life. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit doesn't produce your fruit. Walking by the Spirit produces His fruit. And His fruit are things that are associated with righteousness. The things of God. The things He wants us to be doing with our life. I started not to show this, but I didn't know any better way to do it. Go ahead. You've seen it before, maybe. One of my favorite cartoons. Here's Kermit at the doctor's office. The doctor's looking at an x-ray. I hope you can see it. The x-ray shows there's a hand in there. And he says, I have a, I have a seat, Kermit. What I'm about to tell you might come as a big shock. All those TV shows you do, all that money they pay you, you're not doing all that. Uh, there's a hand in you. You're a puppet. And it's the hand that's doing all the things that you think you're doing. Now, you might think I'm a little kinky. That is the Christian life. That is joy because of obedience. You see, you've got a hand in you. And all the things that are being done for the glory of God are not being done by you. They're being done by the hand working through you. That hand is the Spirit of God. And that's what he wants us to do in this present age. Until he comes, he wants us to joyfully be be obedient, joyful obedience until he comes. That's what he wants us to do individually. And if we as individuals will be joyfully obedient in our personal life, then collectively the church will be so much more empowered by that same spirit to accomplish what he wants the church to be doing to take the gospel to the world and to be an example to the non-Christian world of what Christ is really all about. Because there's a lot of misconceptions out there. So let me review real quick. In this present time, who is the church? We're the church, believers. Regardless of nationality or gender or uh, race, We come in all colors and flavors and languages. It's just an amazing thing. One day we'll see just how divergent and wonderful the church really is. 
What's our mission and purpose? To make disciples and to proclaim the, the gospel and disciple people to follow us so that the next generation will follow them and the next generation, if it comes to that, will follow them. But if we don't raise up another generation, guess what? The church comes to an end. It can terminate itself if it doesn't have the resource of the next generation. What's God's design and purpose for us individually in this present time? We are to be obedient to our Savior and His Word, and that will produce joy. What a wonderful thing it would be to see joy just exploding, not only in this church, but in every church across the world. Maybe then they might begin to realize that there really is something to this Jesus thing. It's not just a fad. It's not just a way to get rich and get well. But it's a way to become a whole new person and to enjoy life on a level that we could never anticipate enjoying it. We could have joy, unexpressible joy, inner contentment and and happiness and all these things. It's hard to define joy, but it's a wonderful thing. And it comes through obedience to God's Word. So I challenge you as I challenge myself that as often as I eat the bread and drink the cup, as often as I'm part of a communion service, I'm reminded that we are to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. But until He comes... As individuals, we are to be joyfully obedient to our Lord in everything He wants us to do and be. Father, I do thank You that You have not redeemed us and just left us alone to try to figure out what we're supposed to do until we either die or until You come. But You've made it very clear through Your Word that we are to be Your ambassadors, we are to be your witnesses. We are to be those who not only take the gospel message wherever it needs to go, but we are living examples of what can happen to a man or a woman or a young person when they not only believe, but then yield themselves to the Spirit of God who dwells in each one of us. We pray, I pray, Father, that it will become a yearning in our hearts that we want to be obedient to our Savior, to our God. We want to do what He calls us to do, knowing that that will bring joy because there's always joy when there's obedience. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.